0: This evening we're going to look at Judges chapter 18. So let me invite you to turn there with me, Judges chapter 18. In chapter 17, the apostasy of Israel was clearly seen, but really on a smaller level in the home of one man named Micah. He was unwilling to, to go within his own territory of Ephraim to go to the house of God. Instead, he made up his own shrine within his own house, and hired his own priest, first his son and then a Levite. And so that apostasy was not confined to one man, that rejection of the truth of of God's Word, but but it was uh, spread to actually the priesthood because you have a Levite coming from Bethlehem of Judah and looking for a place to stay, looking for some sort of freelance priesthood type position, and he finds it in the home of Micah. And so he was willing to abandon God's prescribed means of operating as a priest within the context of where God wanted it to happen in order to become a personal priest to Micah. But here in chapter 18, we learn that this rejection of God is much bigger than one man's house or one Levite, one priest. We learn that this rejection of God is also spread to a whole tribe, the tribe of the Danites, and we learn that this apostasy really has pervaded, pervaded nearly all of Israel, and uh, it's it's a sad state. It's a sad, sad condition to see Israel in. So let's read Judges eighteen verses one through twenty. I'll begin reading in verse one. This is the word of God. In those days. There was no king of Israel, and in those days the tribe of the Danites was seeking an inheritance for themselves to live in. For until that day an inheritance had not been allotted to them as a possession among the tribes of Israel. So the sons of Dan sent from their family five men out of their whole number, valiant men from Zorah and Eshtaol, to spy out the land and to search it. And they said to them, Go search the land. And they came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and lodged there. When they were near the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young man, the Levite. And they turned aside there and said to him, Who brought you here? And what are you doing in this place? What do you have here? He said to them, Thus and so has Micah done to me, and he has hired me, and I have become his priest. And they said to him, Inquire of God, please, that we may know whether our way on which we are going will be prosperous. The priest said to them, Go in peace. Your way in which you are going has the Lord's approval. Then the five men departed and came to Laish and saw the people who were in it living in security after the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and secure. For there was no ruler humiliating them for anything in the land, and they were far from the Sidonians and had no dealings with anyone. When they came back to their brothers at Zorah and Eshterol, their brothers said to them, What a report! And they said, Arise and let us go up against them, for we have seen the land, and behold, it is very good. And will you sit still? Do not delay to go, to enter, to possess the land. And when you enter, you will come to a secure people with a spacious land, for God has given it into your hand, a place where there is no lack of anything that is on the earth. Then from the family of the Danites, from Zorah and from Eshterol, six hundred men armed with weapons of war set out, And they went up and camped at Kiriath-Jearim in Judah. Therefore they called that place Mahana-Dan to this day. Behold, it is west of Kiriath-Jearim. And they passed from there to the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah. Then the five men who went to spy out the country of Laish said to their kinsmen, Do you know that there are in these houses an ephod and household idols and a graven image and a molten image? Now therefore consider what you should do. They turned aside there and came to the house of the young man, the Levite, to the house of Micah and asked him him of his welfare. And the six hundred men armed with their weapons of war, who were of the sons of Dan, stood by the entrance of the gate. Now the five men who went to spy out the land went up and entered there and took the graven image and the ephod and the household idols and the molten image, while the priest stood by the entrance of the gate with the six hundred men armed with weapons of war. When these went into Micah's house and took the graven image, the ephod and the household idols and the molten image, the priest said to them, What are you doing? And they said to him, Be silent. Put your hand over your mouth and come with us. And be to us a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be a priest to the house of one man or to be a priest to a tribe and a family in Israel? The priest's heart was glad and he took the ephod and household idols and graven image and went among the people. This passage again uh, shows us that without proper leadership, every do, everyone does what they think is right. Without proper leadership, everyone does what they think is right. And this passage begins much like chapter 17, towards the beginning of chapter 17, in those days there was no king in Israel. And I mentioned that chapters 17-21 through form an appendix or an epilogue to the story of the period of the judges. And these events, you need to keep in mind, do not follow chronologically after the events of Samson. The purpose of these chapters is to show the utter depravity that has spread throughout the people of Israel during the period of the judges, not necessarily after the time of Samson. Samson in fact this is well before this is towards the beginning of the period of the judges these two stories and these uh, this section chapter 17 through 21 includes two stories the first shows the religious degradation of the people the nation of Israel that has per- pervaded nearly every part of society now we talked about there are some there is some redeeming uh, value in the people of Israel we have people like Gideon and, and, uh, and Ehud and so on and of course, you have David's great-grandparents, Ruth and Boaz, Boaz, during this time as well. So it's not completely a lost cause, but for the most part, Israel is has degraded to, to the worst part of of religious apostasy. The second story, which begins next week in chapters 19 through 21, is about the moral degradation of the nation of Israel. And we'll conclude... Um, with the first story this evening and then takes the next three weeks to study the final story. And these two stories are marked off by this repeated phrase. In chapter 17, verse 6, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Chapter 18, verse 1, there was no king of Israel. Chapter 19, verse 1, there was no king of Israel. Chapter uh, 21, verse 25, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So tonight... We find that the apostasy has not just confined itself to one individual household or even to one individual priest, but it has spread to a whole tribe—the tribe of the Danites. We need to keep in mind that that Samson is from the tribe of the Danites, and his parents were godly people. They wanted to see Samson serve God. That's why, uh, really, the, Samson's mother took the oath—the um, the oath on behalf of the Nazarite vow, that is, on behalf of Samson while he was still in her womb. And here we learn about this tribe, and this is probably before the time of Samson, and yet they seemed to turn into this religious apostasy. In those day, days, the Danites had no inheritance of the land. That's what the second part of verse 1 tells us. They had no inheritance in, in the land. Nothing had been allotted to them. So, they, they're probably a little frustrated right now. I think they're really frustrated. They had this land that had been allotted to them, and Judge, or Joshua tells us about this in Joshua chapter 19. It tells us that God had apportioned a specific land for them, but they had a responsibility just like every one of the other 12 tribes. And what was that responsibility? They needed to drive out the Canaanites. That's your responsibility. Hey, this is the land that you've been given by God, and God's going to be with you the whole way, but you need to drive them out. Turn to Judges chapter 1 and notice that they were unwilling to do this. Unwilling to trust in God and to drive out the Canaanites. Judges chapter 1, verse 34. We have this record here, beginning in verse 27, verse 16 and following, of how. Many of these tribes did not drive up everyone, and so they had some of these Canaanites dwelling in the land. But notice what it says about the tribe of Dan in verse 34, then the Amorites forced the sons of Dan into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the valley. And I can just say to you that Dan was supposed to be given the valley. They were given, allotted that portion of the land, and they were driven out by the Amorites. Instead of them driving the Amorites out, the Amorites drove them out. Verse 35, Yet the Amorites persisted in living in Mount Heres, in Ejelon, and in Sheol- Beam. But when the power of the house of Joseph grew strong, they became forced lab- labor. That is, the Danites, instead of making the Canaanites forced labor. Here, here's what, how the compromise showed up in the tribes of Israel. Instead of driving them out completely because they would eventually become like them, that is, Israel would become like the Canaanites, some of them allowed them to stay in the land and said, well, you know, we won't drive you out. Instead, we'll just make you forced labor. Well, the Danites are actually on the opposite uh, spectrum of that. Instead of them making the Amorites forced labor, they're, they allow the Amorites to make the Danites forced labor. They become the Amorites' servants or slaves, so to speak. And so here, back in chapter 18, we find Danite in this specific predicament. They have no inheritance. They have an inheritance, but they hadn't taken possession of their inheritance. You see, God had promised that they would receive this territory, but He also gave a prescribed means by which they would receive the territory. And the problem was not on the part of God. The problem was not that God had failed with His promise, was it? The problem was that they didn't drive out the Amorites. Instead, they allowed the Amorites to live in their land and, in fact, to overtake them and become their masters. The Amorites forced them to live in the mountains, which would not have been the ideal place to plant crops and to tend to animals, and so it would have made for a difficult life for the Danites. This is is an example for us. Of what happens when we want to take part, take a part in God's blessings, but we don't want to do it on His terms. That we want to enjoy all the blessings that God provides for us, but we're not willing to go through His prescribed means to get there. So, because the Danites don't want to drive out the Amorites, they don't trust that God will give them the land. They decide to do something else, and that's what we read about here in this passage. They decide decide to find their own land. They decide to find their own land. Verses five, or two through ten, talk about how the five spies from Dan are sent to the city of Laish, and uh, these five spies are supposed to search out the land, uh, some kind of land that would be uh, susceptible to the Danites overtaking it with their military power. And so these five spies, apparently five strong men, valiant warriors, maybe their best men, were sent out to spy out the land. See, which ones can we take? Which part of the land can we take? And so they come from this area called Zora and Eshtel, which is about 15 miles west of Jerusalem. And they stop along the way in the, in the region of Ephraim. I said last week Ephraim is about 15-25 miles north of Jerusalem. So not too far north of them is Ephraim where we were uh, hearing about Micah. And, and that's also the place where Shiloh is, the house of God. And they stop there along their way. And as they stop, they hear a familiar voice. Verse 3, when they were near the house of Micah, they, they recognized the voice of a young man, the Levite. They recognized his voice. Maybe it was his accent. Maybe he was from near their area. Maybe it was his specific, the specific timber of his voice. They knew who this was. And so they want to find out more about this. And they meet this man. In verse 4, the man, the Levite, tells them everything that he knows. I came here looking for a place to stay. Micah took me in. He had this graven image and this molten image made. These household idols. He made an ephod for me. And so now I'm his personal priest. And so notice what they ask of him in verse 5. They say, Inquire of God, please. This is the five spies. Inquire of God that we may know whether our way on which we are going will be prosperous. Doesn't this sound familiar from what Micah wanted to use this man for? He was using this man of God as a lucky charm. In chapter 17, verse 13, Micah said, now I know that the Lord will prosper me, now that I have a Levite as a priest in my house. And this is what apparently the Danites are using him for. That Would you just prosper us? Give us success. And specifically, success for them is we're trying to find a specific piece of land that we can take over and we can move our people there. But the prosperity that they were looking for was not the prosperity that God had defined for them. Turn to Joshua chapter 1. Joshua chapter 1. One book back towards the front of your Bible. Joshua chapter 1. And we'll see here how God defines success. Success is not defined in carving out your own territory, uh, trying to seek God's blessing apart from His prescribed means. What is success according to Joshua 1 in verse 8? This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. This verse has specific application for the Danites, doesn't it? Be strong and courageous. Don't fear the nations. In other words, drive them out. God is going to be with you wherever you go. You want to be prosperous, verse 8? Then hold tightly to My Word. Meditate on it day and night. Make it the center of what you think about and what you do. That's success in God's eyes. See, for the Danites, you can turn back to Judges 18, for the Danites, success was not finding a new territory, blazing a new trail. It was taking over the land that God had already given to them that He had already allotted to them. Success, in God's eyes, is doing His will, doing what He desires. And for the Danites, it was to take over that land, to drive out the Amorites. But they were not strong. They were not courageous. Instead, they... They went against God and sought out their own land. Well, notice what the the priest responds, the way he responds in verse 6. The priest said to them, Go in peace. Your way in which you are going has the Lord's approval. Literally, the way in which you're going are under the eyes of the Lord. Your deeds are under the eyes of the Lord. And if we take it that way, literally, your deeds are under the eyes of the Lord. He's technically right. Yes, your, their deeds are under the eyes of the Lord, but it doesn't mean that God, God's approval is with them. But they don't care. They just want the blessing of the priest and what they think is the blessing of God when it's not. When it's not, And so they head on their way. And they come to the city of Laish. And you can find it in, in the map of your Bible. It's all the way to the north part. In fact, when Israel is often talked about, it's talked about from Dan to Beersheba. That's talking about all the way in the north the tribe of Dan, this is where they're going to settle, in the city of Laish, all the way down to Beersheba. And um, this is about 100 miles north of where they were supposed to be living. They finally reach the city and they learn about the people of Laish from a distance or maybe from going in the city and and whatever. But they what they learn about this city is that these people were pretty non-offensive people. Look at verse 7. Five men departed and came to Laish and saw the people who were in uh, in it living in security after the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and secure. So quiet and secure just means uh, unsuspecting. They weren't really afraid of of too much trouble coming their way. And so the tribe of Dan thinks, you know what? We can do this. this. This tribe, they don't really have a whole lot of allies. They don't have anybody lording over them, so... Uh, paying tribute to them. So we could see like if there was a, uh, a Susan Terry vassal uh, treaty that they had and the Susan, Susan Terry uh, the Susan tree would would, uh, would demand that they receive some wages from them, that he would be upset if someone took them out of the picture. But they don't have any relationships like that. And so the tribe of Dan is not afraid of Laish. And they're pretty non-offensive. They are pretty not offensive they do not have any opposition to anyone and so they go back in verses 8 to 10 and report their findings and say let's go let's do it now what are you waiting for let's get going this land is ours but before they overtake the city they bring these 600 soldiers apparently along with these other five valiant warriors and they stop back in Ephraim at the home of Micah do this in order to steal the Levite priest out from under him. That's what we read about in verses eleven to twenty-six. They convince this Levite to come with them. They probably wanted this priest for what reason? They wanting to worship God on His terms. No, they wanted to use this man to help prosper them. They thought in some way if they have a priest of God then they would have the blessing of God. And so the means by which they convince this man to come with them is by force. And that's why we read about the 600 valiant warriors staying at the gate. Uh, This man comes out to talk to them. And while he's talking to them, then the five valiant warriors know exactly where he lives. And they go into his house and they steal all the household idols, the graven image, the molten image, and the ephod. And they bring them all out. And as he's standing there... just outside the gate he sees them bringing all these things out and he says, "What are you doing and and they say to him, wouldn't it be better for you in verse twenty wouldn't it be better for you uh, in verse 19 to to serve a whole tribe of people a whole family of Israel rather than just you know one guy wouldn't it be better for you financially wouldn't it be better for personal profit?" And personal preservation, what happens when someone wants to to attack the family of Micah? Who's going to protect you? You're going to be attacked along with them. Why don't you come with us? We'll protect you. We'll give you a good life. So we have a minister of God who is all about self-interest and self-preservation and self-promotion. Watch out for ministers who are on that path, who are all about themselves. This man wasn't concerned about the ordinances of God. He wasn't concerned about the people of God. He wasn't concerned about the law of God. He was concerned about his own personal well-being. And so, in verse 20, he agrees. Notice, the priest's heart was glad, and he took the ephod and the household idols and graven image and went among the people. Well the Danites know that this is going to cause a problem. when Micah comes back home and finds all of his own shrine missing along with his this Levite, he would want to know what happened. And so apparently he got tipped off to what happened. He starts heading north uh, behind basically the Danites who had already taken off. maybe they had a day to get ahead or whatever the case. Micah gathers some people from his own town. And they try to recover this priest that's been stolen from from him. Notice verse twenty one. Then they turn to depart and put the little ones and the livestock and the valuables in front of them. So the Danites know that the attack that's about to happen is going to come from the rear, right? They're going north, and because the attack's coming from the rear, we need to keep all of our soldiers in the back because if we put all the kids and the and the animals and things in the back, they're going to be attacked and maybe uh, taken from us, and so. They put all their soldiers in the back. Verse 22, when they had gone some distance from the house of Micah, the men who were in the houses near Micah's house assembled and overtook the sons of Dan. That is, they caught up to them. Verse 23, they cried to the sons of Dan who turned around and said to Micah, What is the matter with you that you have assembled together? So here's Dan looking back on this small group of people who are going up against 605 valiant men and saying, What are you doing? Do you really think you're going to overtake us? Verse 24, he said, This is Micah. You have taken away my gods which I have made and the priest, and have gone away. And what do I have beside? So how can you say to me, what is the matter with you? The sons of Dan said to him, Do not let your voice be heard among us or else fierce men will fall upon you and you will lose your life with the lives of your household. Listen, if you want to make trouble, there will be trouble. But you will be the one who will sacrifice your life in order to try to get these idols back and to get this priest back. It's not going to happen. We far outnumber you, and we have much more, uh, better skill than you, and so you can be sure that you will die if you try to attack us. He says, well, where else do I have to turn? I don't have anywhere else to turn if I don't have my idols. But after they they say that they're going to attack him, verse 26, the sons of Dan went on their way, and when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back to his house. Notice the role of the gods in all this. They're being transported, aren't they? They are completely passive in all this. They don't be, act on behalf of either side of the conflict. They don't act on behalf of Micah. They don't act on behalf of of Dan. Probably covered up, laying down in a cart somewhere. They have no authority, no power to do anything. And so, the Danites with their false gods in stow and their priest at their side, they are ready to do what they want to do. And that is to take this land full of unsuspecting men in the city of Laish. And so in verses 27-31, they overtake the city. Then they took what Micah had made and the priest who had belonged to him and came to Laish to a people quiet and unsuccessful. Quiet and secure and struck them with the edge of the sword and they burned the city with fire. And there was no one to deliver them because it was far from Sidon and they had no dealings with anyone. It was in the valley which is near Beth Rehob and they rebuilt the city and lived in it. This city of Laish was apparently a well fortified city. Maybe it was up on a mountain or a hill that was naturally protected from, from the enemies. And these people were quiet and unsuspecting, not not really afraid of any harm because they didn't have any enemies. And sadly for them, they didn't have any allies either. So if someone attacked them, they didn't—they couldn't really defend themselves. Well, they take over the city. The Danites do. After killing the inhabitants, burning down the city, they rebuild it. And notice verse 29, they called the name of the city Dan after the name of Dan, their father, who was born in Israel. However, the name of the city formerly was Laish. And now in verse 30, we have an interesting revelation that speaks to the degradation of the Hebrew culture. We're given the name of the priest and his, his ancestral line. Look at verse 30. The sons of Dan set up for themselves the graven image. Not surprising, right? They, they had stolen these from Micah and now they set them up here in their new city. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Manasseh, he and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the t- day of the captivity of the land. So now we have a name for this priest that we've been reading about since the last chapter. And his name is Jonathan. But more than that, we have his grandfather's name. And and what name is given for his grandfather? Manasseh. right? And there are two Manassas that that we think about when we think about Manasseh in the Scripture. The first is the son of Joseph, right? There was Manasseh and Ephraim. Manasseh and Ephraim, uh, were, really Joseph received a double portion of God's blessing. So, so his sons were able to take the territory, uh, take two portions of the blessings that were given to Israel. Manasseh was one of them. The other Manasseh that I think about is the son of Hezekiah, who was a wicked king. He was very wicked to the core, not like his father, Hezekiah. Now, certainly the author's not referring to the second Manasseh that I mentioned because he hasn't been born yet. But I would suggest to you that he's not referring to the first one either. Look at the margin of your Bible. What's the alternative reading for the name Manasseh in verse 30? Moses. Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Moses. Do you remember this morning? We went to Exodus chapter 2. We saw that Moses married Zipporah and he had a son. What was his son's name? It was Gershom because I have been a stranger in a foreign land. Jonathan, this priest, has a father whose name is Gershom and whose grandfather is named Moses. Now, there is near consensus among scholars that this is referring to Moses. This should be Moses instead of Manasseh. And the reason they think that is because many of the later manuscripts, the earliest manuscripts, I should say, have uh, the later manuscripts have Manasseh. The earlier manuscripts have Moses. So the ones that were manuscripts just means a copy of the original text of Scripture. So whoever made the copies, the, the earliest copies had the name Moses, but then the later copies changed it to Manasseh. Why do you think they might do that? What does this say about the man Moses if he has a grandson who is an apostate? right? It, it says something about Moses and his legacy. And, and Israel very clearly saw Moses as a great man of God, and rightfully so. And they didn't want to degrade or defame Moses' name in any way, and so they thought this can't be the case. And so the scribes made what I would call a purposeful error. That is, they made a purposeful change, I should say to protect the name of Moses. But wouldn't it make sense, wouldn't it make more sense that Jonathan would be a priest rather than Manasseh? This is kind of a, a dull question, but from what tribe does Manasseh come? Right? What, what tribe would, let's say, say it this way, what tribe does Manasseh's descendants come from? The tribe of Manasseh. What tribe does Moses come from? The tribe of Levi. Who were the priests? Where did the priests come from? The tribe of Levi. Why would Manasseh have descendants who are priests? Does that make sense? No, there's no legitimacy in Manasseh's descendants being priests. And so what we learn here is the sad story at the end, or or probably at the beginning of this period of the judges. And as as we go through this, we find that the Danites are completely turned away from God. In fact, this city that was formerly called Laish, now called Dan, this city would become a center for false worship, for worship of false gods. This is where many of the defecting Jews would go to worship false gods because there were altars set up there. They were opposed to God. This would happen all the way until the time of the Assyrian control when Assyria would dominate and they would take the northern tribe into captivity, Dan would be one of the first to go in 710 B.C. This is all a result of Moses' grandson, the descendants of Levi, who have turned away from God. Not willing to accept God's purposes on God's terms. Not willing to seek out God's blessings the way God prescribed them, but to do it their own way. Notice the final refrain of this wicked tribe in verse 31. So they set up for themselves Micah's graven image which he had made all the time that the house of God was at Shiloh. It's pretty bad of Micah not to be willing to go to the house of God which was in his own territory. It's pretty bad of Jonathan, the grandson of Moses, to become a personal freelance priest to this man. But a whole tribe to turn away from worshiping God while the house of God was at Shiloh. To worship God not on his terms, but on their own terms. And in doing so, really worshiping false gods. See, the worship of God for the Danites had become inconvenient for them. And there are several problems with the way that the Danites were acting, aren't there? And we can learn from their negative examples. Let me give you five points of application that we learned from the Danites. Number one, beware of a God-excluded pursuit of success. Beware of a God-excluded pursuit of success. Were the Danites concerned with success? Absolutely they were. But were they concerned with success on God's terms? No. They weren't concerned about seeking to please God. They weren't seeking to find out all the law of God and to obey it and to see Him blessed. They were were concerned about pursuing another form of idolatry. And for them it was getting this land. That was their God in a sense. They wanted to get this land so badly and they were willing to take that land instead of the land that God had already allotted to them. And to do it on His terms. Beware of a God-excluded pursuit of success. Number two, beware of the alleged inconvenience of worship. Okay, or you could just say it this way, beware of the inconvenience in quotation marks of worship. Beware of the inconvenience of worship. What happens when we start to see worship as an inconvenience? For the people of Israel, the house of God was in Shiloh. And yes, it would require effort for them to get there. Yes, it would require effort for them to bring sacrifices. But for them, why not just compromise and make their own house of God? God certainly would be pleased. They could get the priest's rubber stamp on that. We see an example of the inconvenience of worship in Haggai chapter 1. Haggai. talking to the people and telling them they needed to rebuild the temple. And if they did, it would be a visible sign that they were determined to put God first in their lives. To seek God first. And so he says, don't delay in doing what is most important. For them, worship was inconvenient for them because their houses weren't finished yet. still got other things to do with our time and our money. What about you, friend? Has has there been some kind of opposition to you trying to accomplish God's purpose for you to pursue God's blessing? Has there been some kind of obstacle for you to get there? Have you said, like the people of Israel in the time of Haggai, it's not yet time to obey the Lord. I'll, I'll wait until it's easier. Have you gone away from God's prescribed means of worship? Our problem as Christians is that we are often waiting for a time when worship is more Convenient, but let me share a little secret. It will never be more convenient for you to worship God than it is now. It will never be convenient. It will never be easy to do what God wants you to do. It is with much opposition that we fight this battle of the Christian life. It is much with much opposition that we pursue proper worship. And the problem, the reason we have so much opposition, is because the power of Satan. And all of hell is against us. And for us to say, you know, it's too inconvenient for us to worship God in the way that he wants to be worshiped would be like a soldier saying, you know, they got guns. And, you know, we should probably just hang back here in the barracks until, you know, it's a little safer to go out, a little bit more convenient for us to attack. Now, we'll we'll go rescue that hostage when things are a little bit easier. You know, your neighbor's never going to come over and say, I notice that God's very important to you, and so I'm going to mow your lawn, wash your car for you, and that way you can go to church and you can spend time with God. No, No one's going to pay you to read your Bible. No one's going to give you an award or write a book about you for being faithful to God. And so for us, it's all too easy to push God and His work off to a lower priority like the people of Israel and to pursue only convenient worship. But God says to the people during the time of Haggai, how can you give so much attention to polishing up all the things that are of little importance in this life and not have enough time for Me? Because you're pursuing the convenience of worship. So we need to do what Israel was supposed to do during that time when Haggai spoke to them, and that is to put God's work first in our lives. And to do it even when it's inconvenient. Beware of the inconvenience of worship. Number three, beware of a counterfeit God. Small g. Beware of a counterfeit God. The Danites, I don't think, set out to serve false gods. But they tried to serve a counterfeit version of the real thing. The Danites were seeking the priest, seeking the direction that comes from the priest, but they did it through these false idols. They saw the services of the priest, but even he was unauthorized to be living with Micah and to be living with them and to be serving really apart from Shiloh. That's where he should have been. Is that not an illustration of what our world is doing? They're exchanging the truth of God for a lie. They're maybe trying to worship the true and living God, but they do it in a counterfeit way, a counterfeit version of the real person. Beware of a counterfeit God. Number four, beware of a God-excluded pursuit of satisfaction. Beware of a God-excluded pursuit of satisfaction. Any satisfaction that you and I pursue apart from God and His appointed means will eventually disappoint like the gods that were made by Micah. They will eventually disappoint. We can search for temporal satisfaction in anything under the umbrella of God's creation. But we need to recognize that all those things and they will disappoint us. When you find your satisfaction in anything other than God, even if it's something that's not inherently evil, like your family, if that's where you find your primary satisfaction, you will be disappointed because I've got news for you. Your family is going to disappoint with sin. Your family is going to disappoint with eventually dying. Your family is going to disappoint you. And so if you've made that your idol in life, if you've made that your ultimate pursuit of satisfaction apart from God, you'll be disappointed. Whatever it is in which you find your satisfaction will always be suppressed by something newer, and something better, something more appealing... And if those are your primary means of satisfaction, when they are taken away, you will be devastated. Remember Micah? His confidence was in these idols and in this priest. And when they were taken away from him, what does he say? What do I have besides? What else can I do now? Who am I supposed to turn to now? I don't have these things that that I had set up as the most important thing in my life. Everything under the umbrella of God's creation in which we put our confidence, our, our pursuit of satisfaction, will disappoint. But when our satisfaction is found primarily in God, we can have those greatest possessions in our lives and the greatest people in our lives taken away from us and still be happy in God. Is that true? That God is is worthy enough even when everything is taken away for us to still trust in Him. So beware of a God-excluded pursuit of satisfaction. Genuine satisfaction is found when God is at the center of our lives. It doesn't mean we can't find satisfaction in the things of this world. Do you recognize what I'm saying? But that cannot be our ultimate satisfaction in our money, our house, our cars, our job, our family, and even our church. Because when those things are taken away, we will be devastated. But if God is the primary source in all those things, we can find satisfaction And that's good. Because ultimately our satisfaction is in God. Number five, beware of a life that is void of a God-appointed leader. Beware of a life that is void of a God-appointed leader. Without God, a God-appointed king the people of Israel would do whatever they wanted, do whatever was right in their own eyes. And what they needed was a leader who would point them back to God. And that's what the whole book of Judges is about. It's showing us that a people of God cannot live properly without a proper leader. And ultimately, they needed a deliverer. And this deliverer would come eventually in the person of Jesus Christ. If you think the condition of Israel is bad here, wait until we get to chapter 19. And we read through chapter 19 and study and it sounds like something out of a pagan history book. But this is, it's actually talking about the people of Israel. And yet, despite that, God is still at work to bring Israel to a place where He will appoint a leader and will ultimately and lovingly shepherd them to see that He alone is God and that there is no other. God is still at work, despite their sin, to move them to a place where they will will follow Him and worship Him. And I believe He's doing the same thing for us as well. Let's pray. Father, help us to put You first. Seek Your kingdom first. And and, um, righteousness, and, and allow all the other things to be added to us. Lord, help us not to find our ultimate satisfaction in the things of this world, but to find our ultimate satisfaction in You. So that when things are taken from us, our health, family, jobs, things that we love in this world, we will be distressed, yes. It still hurts to lose those things the worst thing that we could possibly lose is a relationship with You. And we don't want to do that. We want You to walk with us all the way. We want to understand and recognize Your presence through it all. Help us to find our ultimate satisfaction in You. Help us to pursue success with You in mind according to Your prescribed means. Not to to go on ahead of You where You have not gone. Not to set up our own false gods in our lives. But to trust You and to Do it on Your terms. Lord, we need Your help in this. And we are constantly being pulled away from the things of You, from Your truth. Because the world is actively opposed to us. Satan is. It's demons. And even our own flesh. So we need Your help. You are our only hope. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.